Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast brought to you by Platform 195. We share trends and strategies across retail media to help you accelerate your brand growth. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson. Welcome to the Retail Media Moguls podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Adamson, founder and CEO of Platform 195. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Colin Lewis, a seasoned marketeer with over 25 years of hands-on international experience. Colin is a multi-award-winning marketer, renowned speaker and consultant who is currently serving as an advisor at Gracing Co. With his extensive portfolio, Colin brings a wealth of insight from his roles at notable brands. And beyond his corporate roles, Colin is a prolific writer and thought leader, having contributed to Marketing Week magazine since 2016, where he shares his insights on marketing trends, strategies, and the future of the field. And as an educator, he significantly contributed to the marketing discourse and shaped the careers of many professionals. And from climbing out of career lows during recessions to navigating the challenges of the startup world, something I'm very familiar with, Colin's journey is a testament to resilience and strategic thinking. His expertise is not just confined to traditional marketing paradigms, but extends to the evolving digital and data-driven landscape, including the emerging field of retail media. I'm delighted to have him here to share his insights on the transformative role of retail media in shaping buyer-supplier relationships today as well. So Colin, welcome to the podcast. Stuart, thank you very much for having me on. That was a, a very long intro. The best way to synopsize it for everybody here is I'm a career marketer whose side hustle has developed into the main hustle after 25 years. So where did you start that career? Talk to me about that. Well, I emigrated to Australia when I was in my 20s through a combination of circumstance and luck and perseverance, which I talk to people a lot about in careers thinking. I ended up as a marketing manager for Tom's Cook in Australia, and I was the head of the retail side. We had about 70 or 80 stores. And one of the things I had to do was negotiate and manage the supplier-buyer relationships. We were the retailer, and I negotiated with all the suppliers, like your Qantas's, British Airways, Trafalgar's of this world. You know, there's echoes of what we're going to talk about today because we negotiated deals and there was lots of joint marketing through it. And I learned a lot. And as I found out later in life, it turns out many of those things are still usable and attributable years later. So what year was that, dare I ask? It was in the 90s. 90s. So, so you Pretty fast forward to when I... I just so, at the starting point of the whole kind of ecom.com, yeah. that kind of period. Yeah. Sort of original retail media. Was that 20 odd years until... 2011 when I joined and scaled the rest of it. Bit of quiz question for you then. What year was Thomas Cook founded? He was founded in 1841. And the very first actual, the reason why Thomas Cook is so famous is uh, the very first actual package holiday was done by Thomas Cook, which was a train ride from the glamorous Leicester to even more glamorous Loughborough in the East Midlands of the UK. The reason I asked, we started a creative and content agency. It took me ages to come up with the name and ultimately settled on the very name that 1841 on the back. He invented package travel. So actually, it was the founder of travel, modern day package travel. Everything we talk about in travel today is directly linked to what Thomas Cook originally did around the world. And I mean, he was doing stuff in Egypt in the 1870s and doing stuff to Australia in the late 1880s. So he really was a pioneer and was also a great business, great people. It was a real thing where I learned what culture really means in an organization. So tell us about your career path since, you know, and how sort of that's now given you this expertise in, in retail media. 
Well, um, after Thomas Cook, I moved back to Europe and I started working in startup and technology firms who are quoted on the NASDAQ. So I really got to understand technology inside out, back to front. And in fact, I worked on a B2B e-commerce startup where we burnt through $70 million worth of venture capital over three years. That was interesting and also a lesson in how what would then subsequently became kind of the Bibles of this world, you know, around, you know, minimum viable product, around lean thinking. Our chief exec didn't want any of that. And so that's why it ultimately led to an acquisition, but not a very successful firm. So back in the day, the whole startup world didn't really have the roadmaps that we have today and the Bibles that we could follow. Then I did an MBA, joined my two previous loves, which was travel and technology. And I ran, I was head of marketing for an airline across Europe, where we're doing 100 million in e-commerce as late as early as 2006. Then I worked for a company called 118 in the UK, but actually the brands like that across Europe. We're spending about $25 million worth of money on TV. So I got really hands-on experience in TV production, but we also had a media business layered over every single market. So we actually sold the calls as in, if you said, I'm looking for flowers or I'm looking for you know, say an undertaker's, whatever, we sold those call numbers up. No right. different Google sold the search numbers. And these businesses were doing millions a year in each market. And I managed the sales team for that, which was a real lesson in how to manage media people because they're very, very different to most other people that one would hire. And I'm sure you know, uh, Stuart. And yeah. then I worked for three or four years back again into travel, working for British Midland Airlines, doing the turnaround post-acquisition from British Airways. And then former bosses. In each case, I, I never really have to apply for jobs. It's just my previous bosses ring me up. I work for a B2B e-commerce technology company. We sold technology to enable ancillary revenue and media sales to be made to airlines around the world, such as British Airways, Sichuan Airlines, Cathay Pacific, as well as online travel agencies um, around the globe as well. And then over the last couple of years, I've been working, doing my own, working for myself, obviously in partnership with other people on e-commerce marketplace technologies. And my what was my previously my side hustle, as I like to say, outside of um, working full-time in jobs, I actually um, started teaching e-commerce marketing, you know, digital marketing back as far as 2011. And I loved it. I still do that. And I also found out that I could write. So I ended up writing for Marketing Week magazine, writing a couple of best practice reports on marketplaces and uh, e-commerce. And more, more recently, in the last year and a half, I've written five best practice reports on retail media. So for Walmart, Amazon, Kroger, Instacart, and Target. And then some people believe I'm quite articulate and can talk. So now I get invited to speak to the likes of Colgate or Barilla, at their internal conferences around the globe about, guess what, marketing, e-commerce, marketplaces, and how this is going to change. In fact, my most recent fun one, I get carried away with my headlines sometimes, and I, I call my most recent one everywhere all the time. So it's a bit of fun doing what I do when I get up on stage. So, and are you seeing those conversations with those marketers? Are you finding that retail media is you know, right up there now as a hot topic of conversation? Yes, it's very much, obviously, we all know why it's a hot topic, because it's been driven by the confluence of things such as the growth in e-commerce is one thing and see people seeing their digital assets as monetizable. Number one, number two, the capabilities around technology that didn't exist. Number three, obviously, well, I think it's now just under 400 days to the death of the cookie, according to Google. And then number five, the realization that 
things like particularly say the margins that the retailers have are really non-tenable. They're not necessarily going up in the longer term. In fact, as an aside, Stuart, one of the things in my presentations, I just put a big screen of numbers and the numbers are things like 2.4%, 3.1%, 3.4%, 3.2%, 2.54%. And I ask people, what are these? I was going to say, don't ask me. And after a while, they realize what I'm trying to get. They are actually the margins of the major grocery retailers across Europe. Are you seeing that? The driver, you know? Because actually where I found that once you've got C-suite buy-in, certainly from working inside retailers, that once you've got that, then things start to shift. Otherwise, you're constantly sort of pushing against, you know, fears of cannibalization, fears of customer experience and things like that. But actually... Ultimately, if you can balance those things, there is a huge amount of revenue to be had. But unless you get that C-suite buy-in, it's really difficult to you know, get people to do things, help you the w- smooth away, really. Are you finding now with your conversations with these bigger retailers that there is C-suite buy-in? Those um, guys are on board? Well, very much so. And uh, 100%, if the C-suite senior management don't buy in, then nothing happens. And I'll characterize it for your listeners into a couple of contexts here, which might help it frame it from. So number one, retail media is not a thing that I flick the switch and it turns and the cash pours in like Niagara Falls. Like many opportunities, it requires a rethink of relationships, requires a rethink of certain processes, and requires a bit more long-term thinking. It's not like, say, I'm opening up a new store, which is essentially um, an optimization capability, and I'm adding on. It's something completely different. It's a way of thinking. And these, so secondly, then these things like sort of talking about, say, customer experience, or and so on, or bottom of funnel, all these things, these are all people mistaking the real, the thing that it's not for the real thing. You know, of course, one is going to look at customer experience. Of course, one is going to use it as a bottom of funnel thing. But in reality, and this is my real point, it's the trigger for a change in the nature of supplier relationships. And the chief execs who get that are the ones who are pushing it, and they understand that at an intimate level. So how is it changing that buyer-supplier relationship, do you think? You were coming and I was like, I better stop. <laughs> That's okay. So how do you think it is changing that buyer-supplier relationship? Well, I go back to my original story when I was a little whippersnipper running the buyer-supplier relationships for Tom's Cook. And how do those discussions occur? We would meet them once a year. We would do joint business planning and we would do a joint plan. We'd have a name. In our case, we call it the Tom's Cook winner plan. And then we would kind of meet regularly to kind of work out how those plans were being executed. And we use media channels. In that case, we were using print media, you know, newspapers, radio, and of course, our own magazines as well. And one of the things that has happened over the last five or 10 years is that nothing has happened. In other words, those relationships are still the same. Whether you're a grocer or whether you're anything else, you still have your annual business plan that you meet with your retailer, uh, with your supplier and they can be sometimes combative or sometimes sort of needle-driven rather than joint kind of like collaboration-driven. I particularly noticed it over the last few years where I was working on a an e-commerce capability project with a major U.S. You know, global brand, but originally U.S. And what was very interesting when their discussions was how they thought about this world. They wanted to move from a situation where it was combative to where actually you were working together to join to to grow the pie. And they were using a specific example of Walmart in the US and how they worked together with Walmart. And it was very much, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. 
they were having integrated conversation around not just co- um, yearly business plans, but joint business plans. And the question really boiled down to was who was in the room? You know, to summarize all this is that some people are still working in this kind of like combative trading framework and others are moving to this kind of like strategic framework. In fact, that actual language I'm using there is what I do when I'm talking to both brands and retailers. I say there's a spectrum and on one side of the spectrum, there's you know, teams who are strategically thinking and going, seeing how the world of data, cookies and technology is going to change that relationship. And the other end of the scale, we've got what I call the traders who just see buying and supplying anything to do with technology is an interruption to the world of trading, which is what retailing nominally is, but actually by definition will be changed to more of a technology driven business again, simply because you know, the world is in all cases has to be mediated through technology and buyer supply relationship is one of the last ones that has been. Yeah. And I think, I mean, how much of those with those retailers are you seeing that sort of brand spend start to shift there? So they are starting to put spend and, and except there are softer metrics beyond just sort of product sales, they can be measured on. I mean, certainly we see that when we start to introduce those things, where we're still using all of that data, but bringing in creative solutions and more engaging solutions, that actually you create a set of softer metrics along with the hard ones that ultimately, you know, actually build those relationships, exactly what you've just been talking about. Are we seeing much of that yet? Still just, you know, retailers are still at the beginning of the journey, still putting the right sort of performance tech on their sites, or are, are we seeing anybody really stealing a march in that sort of full funnel stuff? Well, in this case here, the US is kind of, if you will, stealing a march for a variety of reasons, because obviously scale, slightly different data rules to the US and UK, and their e-commerce scale is is obviously phenomenal. So the US guys are kind of a little bit further ahead, but also what's further ahead than the UK, arguably, is Australia. What I've seen in New Zealand as well as some pretty advanced models. But in the UK, although there's a lot of retail media networks, there's only a couple doing it pretty well. Obviously, I'm, I'm kind of working with some of them and I've seen some very impressive ones, for instance, but Sainsbury's and Tesco's are doing sort of very interesting ones. Mm-hmm. But for your listeners, what I would say is to think in terms of the classic flywheel phrase. So there's the flywheel of your business itself. So, you know, the maybe what your company is doing as a, as a retailer to grow the brand, to grow traffic into the store, to grow traffic into the e-commerce site, which, you know, grows the business overall and, you know, improves product mix and, and so on. Though that sort of flywheel as one and, and also develops logistics for delivery through e-commerce, all of those then in turn create the flywheel for retail medium because if we're rising all boats through quality traffic, better e-commerce capabilities and you know better to kind of, if you will, delivery options for customers, that helps then closer working relationships with suppliers. Why? Because you can give the suppliers more data as to what the customers are actually doing. It increases the level of inventory for sale, um, particularly in digital context. We can talk about in-store as well, which gives us better data which enables us to put more creative solutions, which enables us to give better insights and come up with more innovation, which then spins the light heel back into the original business. So the, you know, there's a whole kind of subset of benefits from retail media that isn't just, I'm selling these bottom funnel ad units. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, are you seeing from that tech point of view that people are advanced? Are there still a lot still at the beginning of this journey? It's a spectrum. I've met companies in Latin America who are way ahead of some brands in the UK. I've seen companies in Southeast Asia who are three three or four years ahead of the UK. 
So it actually depends on your thinking around innovation and also depends on who your role models are. So funnily enough, in, in Latin America, they see what Walmart are doing or Kroger are doing and Target are doing and try to sort of see what they can learn from that. In Southeast Asia, they're obviously looking at what Alibaba did with Tmall. I mean, our listeners here, advertising in China is essentially digital advertising. So 75% of all media spend in China is digital. And what we're calling retail media this on this call is essentially is digital advertising is in China because they operate within closed gardens of the likes of Tmall, the likes of Alibaba on the B2B side, or Pinduoduo on the sort of group buying side. And in fact, all of those, by the way, are marketplaces. China is not just the number one in e-commerce, it's also the number one in marketplaces. So there's a lot to learn from these folks. And that's why when we see what's happening, say, in the UK, part of the reason it might be behind is just simply because the existing business models are not kind of the same as how they are in the rest of the world, or the scale isn't there compared to the rest of the world. So what about the impact of things like, uh, well, you talked earlier about the the cookie apocalypse, I hate that expression, but there it is. You know, how are retailers preparing themselves for this? Are they Are they prepared? Well, I'm going to do a phenomenal set of name dropping right now. So I've been in Cannes and Chicago in the last few weeks where I was speaking at a few events around retail media and attending a few as well to make sure I'm kind of like tuning into what people are saying. And there was people from all over the world in these here. One of the speakers was from Google and they said the cookie apocalypse, we're deprecating the cookie in under 400 days. So that was two weeks ago. So that makes that whatever, 380 days. We then got a chat over a coffee going, who is actually planning around this? And my answer is nobody. And the reason why nobody is because most people are not thinking about the world in terms of two years time. I used to work in the airline business and the line we used by team is uh, long term is next quarter, midterm is next month, short term is today. That's how you have to think in the world of a retail business. Airlines are like retailers as well, because you cannot go plan for next year unless because you're too busy trying to make today's numbers. Now, of course, it's going to become front and center and it'll start building on people probably early next year that the plans they put in place to do XYZ ABC, particularly around performance marketing, isn't quite going to be where it's at. Mm. So although we're still on the, I think the, I'm not sure where it's a cricket analogy or a baseball analogy, we're still in first innings. There's still a long way to go. So that's I'm going to really trash my metaphors here, but we're not even at the end of the first day in a five-day test. It'd be interesting to see, actually, because often retail media organizations within retailers would lean on the marketing organization and potentially sometimes the, the media agency within there. Given those retailers that sell a lot of audience extension, it'll be interesting to see whether actually they might, the necessity of not seeing that revenue fall off a cliff might accelerate how they're dealing with that with data clean rooms and things like that versus the actual brand itself that might just be reliant on it, on its media agency to fix solve the problem. It'd be interesting to see well, how, how that it's... dynamic works. What I've seen and kind of to a certain extent of what we've advised is and then got people to implement is your ad agency can't solve this for you. You've kind of got to tune into where your data is sitting, how you're currently acquiring your customers, what channels you're doing, and then um, think about it in a wider context, because obviously your suppliers are also have kind of skin in the game as well. Mm-hmm. So your suppliers, let's say I'm working with a big brand. They're trying to sell using Google, Facebook, whatever it may be, these kind of cookie-driven environments. They're also trying to sell through you as a retailer. But the former is going to radically change 
And if the retailer hasn't kind of tuned into how that cookie is going to actually radically change the nature of their own business, well, then they've got a problem. So it actually will require buyers and suppliers to come together. One of the things which is I haven't seen as much, but I can tell you what I've seen in the US. So the retailers, the ad agencies in the UK, I can see what their problem is. There's nothing in it for them at the moment, retail media. There is because the reason is the majority of retail media in both the US and UK is Amazon advertising. If you're a business that is, say, let's say a performance-based ad agency where your bread and butter is AdWords, Facebook, whatever, Snap, it doesn't really matter, whatever your bread and butter is, TikTok, you can earn a margin by the fact that your brands or retailers have outsourced the you know, their customer acquisition, customer conversion, customer retention to you. Great. No problem. However, they don't have the capability to understand Amazon advertising because it's a whole new world. And the world of retail media, it will be perceived the scale is not there. So why should I go and do it? Because the money is not there. And also the world of off-site advertising is only nascent. Whereas in the US, I know this because I met some of them directly last week, there's big agencies like Starcom and so on, who have full retail media teams who are buying and selling, buying media on Kroger, on Albertsons, on Target, on Amazon at scale with, you know, full amount of people, sort of like people have in the UK with AdWords. So it's going to be a very interesting bumpy ride over the next couple of years for the agencies. Been an amazing evolution that because, you know, we talked earlier about the buyer-supplier relationship. And actually, I think that's one of the challenges agencies always have is that you're typically the retail media is bought between that buyer and supplier because it's a co-marketing plan and they work out, right, how many product sales am I going to sell? And then what you're doing when you're asking a media agency is to try and get involved in that. And that media agency is typically a planner buyer who has absolutely no understanding of a retailer or how retail works or that buy and supply relationship. And suddenly you're crowbarring somebody in there who's trying to talk about media metrics and this sort of thing. And, you know, there is that education required, but it's hard for them. It's like any business has to go and say, where's the money? You know, show me the money. And in this case here, it's kind of tricky for them to do so. And as you point out, um, and it's actually something I write a lot about, which is by definition, advertisers have to be good at strategy, planning, buying, you know, mm. audiences, all that sort of good stuff. And by definition, marketers and retailers don't have to understand that stuff, but they do have to know how a store works, how an airline works, how these things are put together. You know, never the twain shall meet. And, you know, uh, sort of anecdotally, obviously having run major e-commerce websites and sites and run airlines and retail kind of marketing for years you know i can see why the agencies don't understand it and what they layer over it with their thinking is just typically often not applicable yeah. my, my major bugbear in life is people telling me that airlines are in the travel business and i keep telling them airlines are not in the travel business and that's kind of like heretical to say but no matter how often i tell people airlines are not in the travel business they just can't it doesn't sink in there's just yeah. like that's not the business the business is not a travel business and they're like but i go on holidays on an airline i say yeah but like you know you drive a car that doesn't make you a formula one driver they're just two different things so ultimately tell me you've obviously written your books on e-commerce best practice and marketplaces best practice and retail media there's your plug what do you think in your mind is a best practice sort of formula for retail media if retailers are looking to sharpen or or start their own retail media list well the first thing is the mindset and the mindset is to say if it's a money grab that i think i can go and do something overnight and get loads of cash in well i would tell you to stop now because it's not going to work because you're going to start like you know as i, I like to use say you're going to open the first door 
And then by the time you get to the 10th door, you're going to realize I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm doing something completely different. So it's not a cash grab. It has to be started with like, what are we trying to do? What assets have we got in place? So the first asset you've got in place is what channels am I open in starting with e-commerce? Does it have adequate traffic to monetize? Can I layer a piece of technology, ad tech technology over that to sell those, turn those into uh, individual pieces of inventory that can be sold on a CPC or a CPM basis. So that's the first thing. The second thing then is to what are the other kind of assets that I need to make that happen? So besides getting the technology up and running, the second thing they need to do is realize that just like I talked to the airline business, they're in the seat selling business and not the travel business. Once you get into the game of um, setting up a retail media business, you're definitely no longer in Kansas. You're actually selling media. And selling media is a very different business to you know, selling vegetables as, as a very crudely, it's just a different game. Okay. It's just, it's not merchandising. It's not getting customers in store. It's a very, very different business. And so recognize that I'll come back to the media sales piece. Okay. Recognize that. Then the third piece is that in order for that to happen, you've got to have audiences based on your traffic or AKA data and insight. And so if you don't have those capabilities built out, you very quickly have to start building out your audiences and insights for your suppliers. And only then can you start thinking about, hey, Mr. Supplier, we've got this cool piece of you know, retail media set up. How can we kind of work with you to make this happen? And as soon as those that sort of door is opened, the retail the suppliers will then say, I need better data. I need to know my conversion rates. I need to know what I'm getting for my results. Now, that is then the trigger for sort of deer in the headlights for many retailers. So this is point number five, which is that just like me, when I was a little whippersnipper working for Thomas Cook, I may have not told the whole truth and nothing but the truth to my suppliers about their sales results and the money they had co-invested in us. Now, why did I not tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Because I, A, didn't have the data, couldn't get it together. The campaign was a disaster. And both scenarios made me look like a fool. Now, in both cases, it turns out that's still the case today. So when I talk to retailers, I'm still on point number five here. When I talk to retailers now, I say, are you giving your suppliers the data? And they say, one of two answers. A, I don't have the data. Or B, it was a dog anyway, and I don't want to look like a fool. So how do we move? So now we're getting into point six. It turns out this is going to require culture change for the retailer. So starting out with a, hey, I just want to monetize my B2B assets, very quickly turns into, I've got to change my culture as an organization from potentially combative relationship with my suppliers to actually, we're no longer combative, we're actually going to share and pool notes. So number seven then is, if you buy into that concept, you're then going to have to set up more tools and technologies to enable that to happen. And they include things like clean room technologies. If you're not clear on those, you should look at a search what Amazon Marketing Cloud are doing. But essentially, is the definitive kind of clean room model where we take pseudonymized data from the supplier and the buyer, compare them and see what the results are by category, by product, by market, by audience. And that's actually where we're all going to, whether we like it or not. The Amazon Marketing Cloud model is the sort of metaphor for the future. And the most powerful retailer in the world, who's more or less everywhere, is actually Amazon, at least in the Western world. And they are selling this Amazon marketing cloud to everybody. And the suppliers know this. And when the suppliers see what it can do, and also see what Walmart Luminate can do, they then look at their existing retailers, or probably like a large percentage of their turnover, going, they can do this. We know it works. 
Why can't you do this? So that's point number seven. And my final point, which is we start off thinking it's one thing and at the end, we have to turn ourselves into joint business plan built organizations where we're sharing data together to grow the category and create value for the customer. Yeah, absolutely right. Across all those things and that mindset thing and the pace that you can move at in a retail media organization is also slightly dictated by the size of the organization that you're trying to change. So I always used to liken it to us when we were at Thomas Cook being in a speedboat and trying to pull an oil tanker, but the oil tanker wants to go in the other direction. That's okay. You know, I never have any criticism of that because organizations are who they are. You know, changing incentives is a very, very hard thing to do. I've been involved in even in Thomas Cook, actually, back in the day, in a big change management programs that take a while. We always think what I used to find was it would take three years, no matter how good you were and no matter how aligned everybody was. How could retailers now prepare? You were talked about the media sales piece earlier and that buyer-supplier relationship. How can retailers now prepare for that cultural change or the people change that's required in, inside in order to maximize this? Well, retailers, to a certain extent, are getting a message from the past to help them do this. So let's say up to 2015, 16, many retailers operated as they would have done even 50 years ago, which is selling of merchandise, what's happening in store, creating excitement and experiences in store. And probably the big differences would have been the use of supply chain technologies and delivery technologies. But obviously, obviously since then, we've had the growth of pure e-retailer, e-commerce for retailers. That is essentially a new business compared to what happens in store. And e-commerce is you know, requires complete different thinking to how things operate in store, because obviously everything is mediated through a screen and we're dealing in a world of algorithms and abstractions rather than, say, you know, fruit and veg that I can pick up in my hand, which is where many traders would have come, uh, sorry, where many retailers would have come from. So the e-commerce game actually trained retailers to kind of think through the world through a different lens. That sure, it wasn't quite like opening a new store, but it definitely opened up brand new distribution and then brand new opportunities in terms of skills and, ter- and capabilities in terms of acquisition and retention. So just like that, retail media is another opportunity to go and say, we're building out a different set of capabilities, but that capabilities are built on actually how the future will run. And you know, one of the things in my kind of keynotes, I go and say this, like, is there, and in fact, I've written about this as well, which is, is there any version of the future where you think there will not be more technology and more layers of technology? You know, you're in denial if you think so. Kevin Kelly in his book, The Inevitable, talks about the 12 things that are going to inevitably happen because one thing leads on to another. And he wrote it before the rollout of ChatGPT six months ago, but he did talk a little bit about AI. And it's very clear, you know, exponential technologies enable companies to scale massively without tons of investment. And cloud infrastructure enables you to do so. Exponential technologies enable you to capture lots of data and to use that data to create benefit for shoppers and buyers. Now AI layered on top of that enables you to not even just scale products, but also scale customer service, scale marketing exponentially as well. We're talking about retailers are by definition going to move from traders who are buying and selling fruit and veg or whatever it may be, clothes, to where they are powered by data, technology, artificial intelligence, and so on, because that is an inevitable way of the future. And one tool, one kind of capability within all that is retail media, which also has one added benefit, which is if you get it right, everything is an ad network, as Cypher writes, and you can then scale that also exponentially, but you're getting into a new game. And it's this new game piece that people 
don't cop on straight away and then eventually go right. And that then undermines the previous 50 years we've all had of trade marketing. And so trade marketing selling is to selling products that solve shoppers' problems, whereas trade marketing, God forbid I'm saying this live on a podcast, but maybe trade marketing wasn't used to market products. Maybe it was just used to go straight to the bottom line. I know I've heard rumors, but I cannot say nor deny that I've seen such things happening, but I might have done it myself in the past. So that, uh, that kind of listing fees and all this sort of, sort of stuff, when you have things mediated by technologies, that game has to change. But how do you think AI is going to impact retail, aside from what you've just talked about? One has to look at what AI can do. What it really can do is do things at scale, do things that were previously menial, uh, such as you know customer service and so on. I'm not a one of these like people who pontificate about how the future is going to be. I only talk, talk about things that I think are inevitable. And people will, just like in year 2000, when I first started working in technology, we knew that you know, pets.com was a dog of a business, but that you could sell dog food over the internet and now it's very yeah. successful. And also that you could um, sell airline tickets over the internet, but it wasn't very good. And then it became very successful. I think we can see little kind of glimpses like that right now of the future, which is artificial intelligence can improve customer service, can improve choice, can improve ability of customers, um, can reduce actual headcount doing a menial task, but we don't know how. It can also improve ways to communicate, mm. either through marketing or through content or through visuals. So they're all very much nascent, but that's where we're going to go to. Just like in 2000, we knew it was nascent, but we couldn't figure out where it was, how it was going to turn out. I agree with that. It'll be interesting to see how it's, its impact on aggregators, actually, because ultimately all they're doing is bringing lots of different products, or the same products into from multiple places into one place. Well, one thing I'm, I've always been kind of like down on aggregators, like, I mean, how the hell does this work? But actually what aggregators were able to do, and I'm including, you know, back to my first love, travel, booking.com and, you know, Expedia and even for that matter, Skyscanner. What they did was, if you will, game the customer acquisition system. So booking and Expedia spent in 2018, spent 10.6. 6 billion, I think, purely on Google AdWords. And most recently, I checked again, 2022, they'd up that spend to 12 billion. So essentially, they do arbitrage, which is they know how to make this work. They've got an incredible amount of data science and they've got very big budgets. So they layer themselves in between the consumer and the ultimate supplier of the product, which in this case is airlines and so on, or hotels. And so even though I think aggregators won't have a future, they always find a way, you know, good for them. Um, one final one I want to talk about is newer models come through that. I mean, I saw this great business in a very interesting business, I should say, in Germany, Austria, and the Czech Republic when I was speaking at a conference recently. And they call Rolik or O-H-L-I-K. And they do, guess what? Fresh food delivery. And because it was built from ground zero, as in, you know, went from zero to I've got a business up and running, they built the retail media capabilities in from day one, and in fact, built their own ad tech. And they had a couple of really, really interesting concepts going on. And this is an example of where innovation is coming that we didn't think of, powered by artificial intelligence. All the trucks and vans are electric powered. And their motto is this, which is like, do you want the groceries? You go to the grocery store and deliver your steward's going to do his shopping and you know Colin's going to do his shopping and Mary's going to do their shopping and and Betty's going to do their shopping. So there's like 10 sets of cars drive to the grocery store and we all pack our car and then we drive home. Or B, do you want an electric vehicle to do all that shopping for you and deliver with no emissions and no traffic 
with the actually routing chosen through artificial intelligence to maximize the opportunity with the call time drop in time monitored through artificial intelligence and through what suits you as well Mm. you can kind of see a glimpse of the future there which is how things can pan out once you have a ground zero kind of approach to life and so that's kind of where i see the future which is existing businesses redone from a clean slate actually we've got a couple of clients now who are launching new site it's a pleasure to deal with because we can actually dictate or not dictate but work through with them what those how that retail media operation looks from the start and everyone's aligned and there's nobody saying a site and on the go that then being cannibalized or you have to ab test and that it's all from the off so innovation or uh they call it joseph schumpeter called a creative destruction is actually going to be another thing that's going to come up on the side that we're not expecting tell me a bit more about that Well, back in the 1940s, there was an Austrian economist called Joseph Schumpeter. And uh, one of his key kind of points in his his book is how innovation waves occur is not through layering over existing things. It comes through what's called creative destruction, where new innovations and new technologies come on and kind of blow away the past. And for our listeners, it's understanding destruction. Destruction is a bit of a harsh word, but that's not what he means. Um, he kind of says, well, there's a lot of newer opportunities that create. Now, we all know this because most people listening on this call probably can remember 25, 30 years ago, and that many businesses don't exist from 25, 30 years ago. And that's an example of creative destruction. There's plenty of retailers who went bust in the last 10 years. That's an example yeah. of creative destruction. But big difference, say, compared to 20, 30 years ago, is the speed it, driven through exponential technologies and driven through exponential capabilities. So, you know, a steward myself arguably could spin up a retailer through using Shopify and, you know, getting some payment mechanisms aboard, getting some suppliers aboard through a wholesaler. Well, give or take, we could have the Shopify side up in half an hour. You have payment mechanisms up in an hour or two and we're in business. Getting the supply might be tricky and getting the delivery but might be tricky, but arguably we could be up and running within a month without some huge capital cost. Whereas yeah. if Stuart and, myself, Stuart and I were going to set up a retailer on the high street, first of all, we'd have to do a lease. And then we'd buy that lease and the lease would be for 20 years. Then we'd have to go and fill out the store. Then we'd have to get payment terms and we wouldn't get payment terms. So we'd actually have to fund every single product ourselves out of free, out of cash. And then we'd be signed through a 20-year lease and we still have no customers. And then we have to hire staff, we still have no customers. And then we've got a marketing program, we still have no customers. So you see the two differences, see that chasm between the two. Yeah. And so that's why people still, like you see these, well, I'm going to be rude on your show. You see a lot of people talking about how e-commerce is flatlined, e-commerce is dead. And the correct answer for those people is morons, okay? Because they can't actually see how e-commerce completely changes the business model of retail. If we have, and by the way, we have a model for this already, and it's called commercial real estate. So commercial real estate right now is on a major problem. Why? Because they built these massive assets that people are no longer going to because of hybrid work. Two, three days a week will not make you pay for your billion pound mortgage. If we take the same thing with retailing, which do you want? Do you want to open up a shopping mall, you know, out of town that costs billions to build? Um, needs to be filled full of staff and have lots of attractions to get people there? Or B, do you want to set up, you know, Lewis and Adamson retailers, run it from a very cheap warehouse using cheap technologies and deliver exactly the same experience, but online? There is only one answer, Stuart. 
Yeah. yeah, that's why e-commerce is barely started. We're actually in the th- web one was the original phase of the web in the 2000s. Web 2.0 was obviously the rise of social media. And we're now about to do web three, and it's going to make the other one look like kindergarten. I think if we did set up a retailer, we wouldn't need a warehouse because it'd be in travel. Well, I think that, that's a really good point. But the rules don't apply in many cases on services. It's kind of interesting. You hear a lot on marketing talk about how we shouldn't discount. I'm like, well, if there's no cost of delivery and it's a marginal cost of delivery, you can discount all you like. Yeah. And people can't tune into this because they still live in this world of you know hard products rather than abstractions and algorithms, which is essentially what e-commerce and marketplaces are. No, I think we're sort of slightly over time, but I've just you know absolutely loved talking to you, Colin. I think it's been an absolutely brilliant pod. So thank you for coming in. But maybe one last question around innovation you know you talked just then a lot about innovation what about what are the next what are the big innovation trends what's going to happen now in retail media over the next few years well the first one is people will start really realizing what they can do with their data and the audiences around that number one number two the trigger from can a few weeks ago from google was where they're basically saying we're not getting involved in retail media what we're going to do is use extensions audience extensions and what's one of those audience extensions search what's the big one YouTube. And so what we're going to find is brands going, hold on a second, I can advertise my products on YouTube match to audiences from a retailer rather than go onto ITV and spend mega money on, you know, advertising the ITV news. That is a complete game changer. That's obviously tied in with connected TV. And then number three will be capabilities of brand building offsite, which the one I've just described there, but also other channels as well. That's what's going to happen. It's a 100% guarantee because the current way of marketing brands through expensive TV ads with massive production costs yeah. is only selected a few, and the future is belongs to democratization of technologies and democratization of products. Absolutely. And it's exactly where seeing our clients, what we're doing for our clients, exactly those three things, which is good to know, quite validating. Uh, listen, Colin, it's been amazing to meet and a kindred travel spirit and a retailer. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join our Retail Media Moguls podcast. It'd be great if you come back at some point, you know, come and see how maybe in a, in a few months or or a bit longer and just see how things are developed. And we can talk again and look back maybe at some of these themes we've talked about today and see how they've evolved. Well, I'd love to do that. I'm actually go visiting another five or six countries between now and the end of the year, including go back to Australia and New Zealand. So I'll have more news then to talk about what's happening um, around the world. Fantastic. Well, we'd love you to come back. So look, thank you again. Thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you back here again soon. Thanks a lot, Stuart. And thanks a lot for everybody having me on. The Retail Media Moguls podcast is brought to you by Platform 195. To learn more about Platform 195 and how to connect retail media with intelligent marketing to accelerate growth, visit platform195.com. And then make sure to search for Retail Media Moguls in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Platform 195, thanks for listening.